0: Matthew 8, verses 14 through 22. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side and a scribe came up to him. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Let's pray before we turn to this corner of God's word. Father God, uh, the Lord Jesus taught us that uh, his sheep hear his voice, uh, they know him and they follow. And so this morning we pray that we would hear Christ speak to us uh, through his word, that your spirit would work in us to give us ears to hear uh, minds to understand, and hearts to receive with joy, what He says. Do this, we pray, for His name's sake. Amen. Uh, I don't know if you ever tried reading some of the Gospels consecutively—reading Matthew's Gospel, perhaps, and then Mark and Luke. One of the things that will happen if you do that is will realise that they're just not identical. Okay? They don't relate all the same stories, and even some of the stories they do tell are in a slightly different order. And the reason for that is that, that, that any one of the Gospels, so Matthew, like we're looking at this morning, is not, if you like, Matthew's video diary of what happens during Jesus' three or so years of earthly ministry. He's not writing down literally every single thing that happens. Uh, instead, he is choosing key incidents to communicate his message to us. If you like, their works of theology before their works of history now that's not to say these things didn't really happen of course they did so it's true what he's telling us but Matthew is selective in terms of what he includes you can tell that even from the passage we just read we read for example in verse 16 that in the evening people walked with many who were oppressed by demons and cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick There's very little detail. We don't know how many people were brought. We don't know who they were. We don't know anything about their stories. We're just told Jesus did loads more stuff than I'm recording here. And similarly, if you know the end of John's gospel, John says something very similar. John says, look, if I was to record everything Jesus did, that the world's not big enough to to house the book that would be needed. And what that means is we we need to look carefully when we're reading the gospels and think, why has Matthew, including this story, what is special about the miracle I'm reading about or the little parable I'm hearing here? What is it telling us? And why has Matthew, or more significantly, the Holy Spirit included it? Now, it, over the last couple of weeks, we've begun this series on Matthew 8 through 10. And one of the things we, we've seen, or if you were here the first week, you'd have seen, is that big picture, Matthew's been drawing this parallel between Jesus and Moses. So in the, in the Old Testament, it was prophesied, it was predicted that one day a prophet would come who'd be like Moses, but even greater. And Matthew has been painting Jesus with the colours, if you like, from the Old Testament paint box. So a bit like Moses, when Jesus was little, a wicked foreign king tried to kill him. A bit like Moses, Jesus has come out of Egypt to Israel. A bit like Moses, Jesus has sat up a mountain, gone up a mountain and taught God's people how to live. That was the Sermon on the Mount that we looked at, a term we'll say back. And you may remember that I mentioned, again, I think it was the first week, that the next thing that happened in Moses' life was the people of Israel wandered in the desert. And as they did so, ten times they rebelled against God. Ten times God rebukes them for showing a lack of faith. So here in Matthew 8 and 9, as Jesus comes down the mountain, a greater Moses, ten times he does amazing things in order to provoke a response of faith. These chapters, Matthew 8 and 9, and the the miracles that are recorded in them, in many ways are chosen in order to elicit that response of faith from, well, those who were there at the time, but more significantly from us too. The question is being asked, will we respond to Jesus with faith in light of what he does? Or will we be like those characters in the Old Testament, who despite all God had done for them, all the wonders he performed, still turned away in unbelief? And the, the miracle we're looking at today, in many ways, is an unimpressive one. Verse 14, uh, Jesus comes to Peter's house. His mother-in-law is there. By the way, just, just in passing, note that Peter is married. Okay? In some church traditions, um, it, it, it's seen as wrong or told that it's wrong for, for ministers or vicars or priests, or whatever you want to call them, to be married. Well, Peter, very obviously, is married. The chief of the apostles is married. It's hard to have a mother-in-law if you haven't got a wife. Uh, so his mother-in-law is sick with a fever. Jesus touches her hand and the fever leaves her. It's not particularly impressive. There's not much detail. We don't know how seriously Peter's mother in law is ill. We don't know what the fever was. He just walks into the house, touches her, job done. But actually, Peter's mother in law, I think, is put here in the miracle, it is put here as an example of what a true disciple does. Just, just what does she do next? You notice what she does next? It's so all just in one verse, verse 15. Jesus touched her hand, the fever left, leaves her, she's saved, and she rose and began to serve him. She moves from being sick to serving, in the space of one verse. She, if you like, is, is the model disciple. She's healed, and therefore she serves. She saves, and therefore she serves Jesus. Uh, that is the true response of faith. To seeing the great works of Jesus, to seeing who Jesus is. When we see and believe, we respond by serving him. And that, I think, is the, if you like, the, the big message Matthew's trying to build up over these chapters. Uh, if, if you just look at the big picture, we're, we're, this is the third miracle we've looked at already. And actually, Matthew structures his, his little section, eight and nine, by telling three stories and then Jesus doing some teaching. So we've already seen him cleanse a leper. You can see this just in the block titles that the ESV editors put in. Matthew cleanses a leper. Sorry, Jesus cleanses a leper. He then cleanses the the centurion's servant, saves him. Then he heals uh, Peter's mother-in-law. And then he does some teaching about what it means to follow him. And then we go around the cycle again. Three miracles and some teaching. So he calms the storm. He heals the men with demons. He heals a paralytic. And then we get a block of teaching about what it means to follow him fasting, rejoicing, and so on. And then once more around the cycle, uh, there's a kind of double miracle. That's how you get 10 miracles with only nine stories. So a girl is brought back from the dead and a woman is healed as Jesus goes en route to save her. He then heals two blind men. He heals someone who's unable to speak. And again, there's a section of teaching about what it means to follow him, to be an evangelist. But the point is being emphasised in this of three cycles of three, when you understand your salvation, well, that'll shape how you serve. Now, that, I think, is why Matthew has structured this part of the gospel in this way. The structure, if you like, tells its own story. Salvation leads to service. And we might say, and this is perhaps the most important thing but this morning, your understanding of your own salvation will dramatically shape your service of Christ afterwards. That The more you understand, the more we understand, the more clarity we have on the nature of our own healing, the more dedicated we'll be. To serving Christ so let's dive in a uh, look uh, a little more detail uh, first of all verses 14 to 17 uh, where we see we're saved in order to serve we're saved in order to serve as I said already that at first glance that the miracle looks a dull one compared to the last two but it's comparing it to the last two that, that brings out its significance if, you, if we play to spot the difference. I'm sorry for those who weren't here the last couple of weeks, but if you pray, spot the difference between this miracle and the last two, does anything strike you? What is the difference between this one and the other two? Well, let's walk through them. In the first one, we had a leper, and the leper came to Jesus. Uh, verse uh, two, behold, a leper came to him, knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, if you will, you can make me clean. So we have a man who is sick, ill, essentially is the living dead, and he comes to Jesus. And asks. The next story was, was slightly different. The person who was ill, we never actually meet or see, is a servant back home, a servant of a centurion, a Roman soldier. And and the servant is so ill that he, he doesn't come to Jesus. He's just off scene, off stage, never see him. But the centurion comes on his behalf. There's still an approach to Jesus. Someone still comes and asks, but it's not the sick person. What's different about this miracle? No one asks. There is no approach. The mother-in-law never asks to be healed. Peter doesn't ask on her behalf. It's not because it's his mother-in-law. It's just not there in the story. No one approaches Jesus. No one takes the initiative. Jesus just enters and on his own initiative, heals the woman. And I think that's tremendously important to what Matthew's trying to teach us. Let me ask you this question. What saves you? Okay, if I was to ask you this question, what saves you? Faith or grace? Okay, which saves you, faith or grace? They're two kind of churchy words, aren't they? Okay, we're all talking about, you know, uh, our faith in Jesus, or we sing amazing grace. You know, f- we sang a couple of weeks ago, I think, you know, by faith this mountain can be moved. We talk about our faith a lot, and we talk about grace a lot. Which saves you? Well, it depends. In some ways, it's an unfair question. It depends what you mean. No one is saved without faith, okay? So, so no one is saved without trusting in Jesus. But we've got to be careful when we say that, because that could imply that the way we're saved it is by me bringing Jesus my little gift of faith, me saying to Jesus, look, I, I know I can't earn my salvation, I'm not a good person, I've done all sorts of bad things, but hey, if I just bring you this little gift that, that we'll call faith, then will you accept that? in place of all that terrible stuff I've done. And Jesus says, yes, fine, I'll take faith as your little offering, and now I'll save you. The problem with that is it makes faith a sort of a little thing we do, a little, it might just be a drop in the ocean, it might just be a penny in the fortune that we owe, but at least we're contributing. That is not at all the Bible's understanding of faith Our faith is not what saves us. If you're talking about what actually has the power to save us. In that sense, faith does nothing. So children, think, uh, think of a man in the desert. Okay? He, he's been wandering around the desert. He's, he's just so thirsty. He's dying of thirst. His water bottle's empty. And then he suddenly sees a little lake, okay, an oasis in the desert. And he stumbles to it and he dips his bottle in the, in the water a, a, and drinks the water. What saves him? Okay, and he comes back to health. What saves him? The water saves him, doesn't it? It'd be silly for the man to say, the bottle saved me. Well, the bottle couldn't do anything. The bottle was just the kind of, the vessel that delivered the magic water that saved him. Well, so too, our faith. Our faith doesn't do anything. Our faith is just, if you like, an empty hand that receives God's gift of salvation. In that sense, everyone has faith. Every human being on earth has faith. Faith is just the answer to the question, what do you trust in? You can't not trust in something. You you either trust in yourself, I'll I'll deal with death on my own. Or you trust in a God or a saviour. So in that sense, it is not faith that saves you. It is Jesus. So my only question, what saves you, grace or faith? When we talk about grace, we're simply saying God at work. And we talk about being saved by grace alone, we talk about being saved by God alone. Grace means that uh, God shows us kindness that that isn't deserved to us, that we don't deserve, rather. So that's why we tend to talk about being saved by grace, because really that's just a shorthand way of saying by God alone. By grace, but through faith. Now, why all that? What's that got to do with our story? Well, look at this woman. She shows no faith that we see. She makes no request, nor prays on her behalf. There is no faith for Jesus to be amazed at, as he was last week at the faith of the centurion. She is lying there, incapacitated. Jesus, of his own accord, walks into the house, sees, and heals. He enters, he sees, he heals. All the action is his. All the work is his. This woman is healed by grace alone, by Christ alone, by God alone. That's important to understand uh, in a kind of passing way in terms of our understanding of healing. Uh, There are, uh, sadly, uh, churches, ministers, preachers, TV channels that preach if you just have more faith, then you'll be healed from whatever illness you have. that would be a terrible thing to teach. Uh, Many times in the New Testament we read of very faithful people, Paul himself, Timothy, uh, and others who are believers, you presumably have great faith. You'd never accuse Paul of having a small faith, and yet suffer and ultimately die. Uh, it's not, there's no link, unbreakable link between having faith and being healed. Sometimes you have faith and God doesn't heal you. Sometimes, frankly, you're showing no faith at all, and God, in His grace, just heals you anyway. But, but I think the deeper significance here is, is not when we think about healing in terms of physical healing and illness and sickness and disease, but rather about salvation, unless you think that I've just been trying to make a whole sort of theological point out of just a nice little miracle story, Matthew sets us straight. Verse 17. This was to fill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. You want to understand what's been going on, says Matthew. Well, it's all about what Isaiah told you it was going to be about. And he quotes Isaiah 53 perhaps one of the most famous chapters of the Old Testament. He quotes Isaiah 53 uh, and verse 4. We're not always going to look up some references, but I think it's useful today. So if you could flick back, please, to the book of Isaiah and chapter 53. It's page 600. And we'll start at 613. Page 613. 613. Do you want to know what's been going on in Jesus' ministry, says Matthew? Read Isaiah 53. I'm not going to read all of it. Let me pick it up from verse 3. Now, this is speaking about Jesus. It's a prophecy of Jesus. Verse 3, the bottom of the page there. He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now, that is the verse that Matthew's quoting. Now, slightly annoyingly, for our purposes this morning, he's translating it in a different way. Okay, so the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, Matthew's written in Greek, so I I realise the words aren't written exactly the same, but that is the verse he's quoting. Why does he quote it? Why does he quote this verse about Jesus bearing our, our pains, or our illnesses, or our griefs, or our sorrows, or our diseases? Our illnesses, our sickness, all sorts of ways it's translated. But why does Matthew quote that verse? Well, he says in, in and no need to say about that yet, but he says in his own gospel that it was to fulfill what Isaiah said. He took, or in the words of Isaiah in our version, he bore. It's as if Jesus took the sicknesses that he was curing, the leprosy, the paralysis, the fever, and, and took them onto himself. There was a switch. Jesus comes down the mountain like a, like a river flowing with life. And as he touches people, his life flows to them. So he is uh, the, the second true man that God has ever made. You have Adam, who he was healthy in the garden and all was well until he fell. And Jesus comes as, as the second Adam, this second man just full of life, full of the spirit. And as he touches, his life flows to the person and they're healed, restored to life, resurrected, if you like. But, but Matthew tells us that in some ways the swap went both ways. He took our diseases. He gave us his life and took our diseases. What's going on? Is it that Jesus then became paralyzed or blind or, or, or leper? or Well, no. Okay? Jesus was never physically ill. So what's he talking about? Well, we need to read on. Look at verse 5, Isaiah 53 still. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, what is it this time? Not the griefs or the sicknesses or the sorrows, but the iniquity. Do you know what iniquity is? That's not a word we use very often. Iniquity means sin. The Lord has laid on Jesus the sin of us all. What's going on? Matthew realises that there is a link between sickness, sickness and suffering, and sin. Uh, When God made the world, there was no sin in the world or sickness in the world or trouble in the world. No pain, no leprosy, no blindness, no paralysis, no fevers. But because we rebelled as humankind, then suffering and sickness came in as a curse. If there was no sin, there would be no sickness. Now, that's not to say that every time you're sick, it's because you've done something particularly sinful. Okay, so if you're ill this morning, it doesn't mean that you have to find the sin that you committed that made you ill. Uh, that is by no means always the case. But there is a link between the sickness in the world and all the suffering we undergo and the sin that was the root, if you like. Sin is the, uh, the root and sickness and suffering is like the thorns and thistles that grow out of it. So if Jesus is going to get rid of the suffering in the world, the sickness, the only way he can do that is by getting rid of the root problem, the sin. So in our back garden, uh, we've got two flower beds. We rent a house up in North Leeds. We've got two flower beds and um, they, they just sprout weeds, okay? massive like thistles this big and all the rest of it. And every now and again, I go out and I hack them down. I'll get the strimmer. I'm not a gardener. I'll get the strimmer and just destroy them across the top. Okay? And obviously, a week later, they're back. Because I haven't dealt with the problem, the roots underneath. You can keep chopping down the top, but roots just grow back more thistles and thorns and weeds. If Jesus is going to get rid of suffering in the world, sickness, paralysis, blindness, then he has to get rid of sin that is its root. And that's what Isaiah 53 tells us he has come to do. When he goes to the cross, it's not... It's not that all our illness is put on him as if he suddenly becomes ill in all sorts of horrible ways, but rather our sin is put on him. He represents us. He pays the penalty for our sin. He is struck down so that we might not be. And just as in Matthew, when he talks about um, Jesus bearing our illnesses, Jesus doesn't actually become ill. Well, so too on the cross. It's not that Jesus actually became sinful as if he actually became a bad person that he actually rebelled against God. No, there's, there's mystery there about how they were somehow put on him and yet he remained pure. But put on them on him, they were. That means that these miracles in Matthew that we're looking at, they are a picture of salvation. When we see someone being healed or their sight restored or their hearing coming back or their tongue being loose so they can speak, they are a picture of salvation. But in a sense, they're even more than that. They are salvation actually coming. There is a link between the suffering and the sin. And so Matthew is showing us, if you like, the big picture of what Jesus has come to rescue us from. Yes, sin, which is the root, but actually also all the horrible suffering and sickness that goes with it. As if I'd thought about it, we'd have sung the hymn today, Joy to the World. We often sing it at Christmas. One verse in Joy to the World. I'm not going to sing it, so try and hear the music as I read it. Um, I think it's verse two or three. says this, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. There'll be no more sin and sorrow, or thorns, which remember the symbol of the curse, Genesis 3, the world is covered in thorns because of the the fall. But rather, Jesus comes to make his blessings as far as the curse is found, that is, to the ends of the earth. He has come to deal with your sin, yes, but he's also come to deal with your suffering and your sickness. Not yet. It won't be till he returns or you die that your suffering and sickness goes away, but he has come to deal with it. I wonder sometimes, it, the, the tradition I'm from, this church represents, I guess, conservative evangelical. And we, we rightly, I think, take a stand and say the main problem facing you in your life is your sin. And that is absolutely right. <coughs> uh, we rightly take a stand and say there are no promises that right now, every single time, God will deliver you from your, your sickness, your illness. But, but I wonder if, therefore, we, we downplay, if you like, the the breadth, the size, the scope of the salvation that Jesus is going to bring. Yes, He is going to save you from your sin, which is the most wonderful thing, but He is also going to save you from all that crushes you in this life, all that buries you in this life. Okay, all that makes you weep and sigh and mourn. Matthew 8 is telling us that Jesus' is good news for sinners certainly. But he's also good news for the sick, the depressed, the lonely, the grieving, the widows, the orphans, those suffering cancer, the starving, the hungry, the anorexic, the depressed. On and on we might go. All of these burdens, all of these sufferings, all of these results of the curse, and we'll all bear them in some ways. We'll all know them in some ways, and it'll be unique to each of us. But all of them are gone when Jesus Cuts off the root, which is our sin. He has come to rescue us from them all. And not far from here, there's a church where, on the um, a church building, and outside uh, is the big banner: uh, "Your best life now." That's only half wrong. Your best life now. It's become a sort of slogan of, of what's called the prosperity gospel movement. You know. Jesus wants to give you your absolute best life now. Those guys are only half wrong. But the wrong word there is now. There's no promises about now. But but Jesus will give you your best life if you put your trust in him. It just won't happen until he returns. So do you see the scope of salvation? And that is why uh, the disciple, the true disciple, verse 14, sorry, 15, rises and serves. Jesus has come to save us, to restore us, and a restored human being, the thing they rightly do, the thing they want to do most is serve their Lord. We've been saved in order to serve. We're not saved so we can just then rush off and indulge ourselves in all sorts of ways, ignoring God. That was the whole problem in the first place. Ignoring God is sin. The reason, if you're a Christian here today, the reason God has saved you is so that you would serve him. He's not saved you just to get you a get out of jail free card for heaven or something. He saved you so that you would serve. So let's think in our last few minutes about uh, verses 18 to 22, where we see that we should serve as those who've been saved, serve as those who've been saved. Two characters, a scribe and a son. Jesus says it's, it's time to go. The crowds are built up, verse 18. And he says, right, it's time to go over to the other side, meaning the lake. So they're going to sail across uh, Lake Galilee. So, so we're off on a journey, says Jesus. And straight away, we meet a hasty scribe. A hasty scribe, verses 19 to 20. A scribe is a teacher, okay, one of the experts, the uh, preachers of the day. And he runs up to Jesus. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. You can hear the confidence in his voice. But Jesus calms him down. Verse 20. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have, Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. There is no home if you follow me, says Jesus. Uh, if you come after me, you will have no comfort. I'm not sure if the, he thinks that the, the, uh, the scribe is being overly zealous. It's possible uh, that the, the, the motives in the scribe are, are wrong. So, for example, nowhere in Matthew's gospel does any true disciple call Jesus' teacher... Okay, real people who put their faith in him always call him Lord or Master or something like that. No, no disciple ever calls him teacher, but on one occasion Jesus calls himself teacher, so that may be reading too much into it. Uh, some have suggested that perhaps this guy just wants to, to be taught so he can then become a teacher himself and just sort of show off his Bible knowledge to other people. Maybe, but, but I think that's probably going beyond what the text allows us. Now, whether this guy is sincere or not, Jesus is, is being super, super clear with him. If you follow me, that is death to your comfort. And straight after, uh, the hasty scribe comes a, a hesitant son. Verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, now it's one of the, not one of the 12. Disciples here is just a more general term for anyone who's in Jesus' crowd, if you like, at that type point. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Well, if the last reply of Jesus was uh, startling, this one is flabbergasting. Lord, first let me go bury my father. How unkind of Jesus in his response. Let the dead bury their own dead. Come, follow me. Now We need to understand what's going on here. It's not the case that this guy's father has literally just died. If the father had just died then the son wouldn't be there. Okay? Because in, in Jewish culture and in the hot Middle East, you can imagine, when someone dies, you bury them within 24 hours. You stay with them, you mourn, you sit with them and you bury them. So if the father had actually died, that the son wouldn't be there. Now, rather, this is a kind of expression, and people are you know, expert in how people spoke back then and all the rest of it, have pointed out that it's much, 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 much more likely that this is just the common way of speaking about a son who says, well, let me stay with my father during his last period of life. Might be weeks, might be months, might be years. But he's at the end. Let me stay with him and bury him. Let me see his life through, if you like. And then I'll come and follow you. Uh, Jesus is not ordering this guy to, to break the fifth commandment, if you like. Honor your father and mother. Okay, it would be a terrible thing just ditch your father, is he? But still, his words are shocking. Uh, yes, uh, he, is, he, he is stating it in a way that is deliberately provocative. Lead the dead, meaning the spiritual dead, to bury their own dead. But the point he's making is that nothing, no cost, can be counted too high in following Jesus. There's nothing that we can value, we should value more than following Christ. I feel like there are no demands he can make of you that are too great. No comfort when you follow him and no cost too high. Too high. And it sounds outrageous, doesn't it? It sounds outrageous. Until we understand our salvation. Okay, and that's why we labeled the first point. Well, I labeled the first point so strongly. We are saved by grace alone. When we understand our salvation, that shapes our service. And unless we understand that we've been saved by grace alone, we can never make the kind of sacrifices that Christ calls us to. If I understand, or sorry, rather, if I think that in some way I contributed to my salvation, you know, I was a sort of better than most, and so Jesus chose me and forgave me. If I think, well, I was a terrible mess, but at least I had faith, so Jesus forgave and saved me. Then, then I've got something to bring to the table with Jesus. He's my master, my Lord, but it's, it's a bit like he's employed me. I've got certain rights. You know, I've done something for you, Jesus. I've believed in you. Okay? I, I made an effort to be a bit better than some people. I came along to church. I said some prayers. I've done something for you, Jesus. So you haven't got complete control of me. You don't have complete rights over me. It's a sort of contract situation. Of course, you're the boss. Okay? You can ask me to do loads of things, hard things even, but I've got some rights. After all, I did sign up for your service. I signed the contract. I came to the recruiting office and lined up. I joined you. I found you. So don't overdo what you ask of me in return. If you have that understanding of salvation then your discipleship is always going to be somewhat limited because there are ends to it. You'll think there are some things that it's unfair of Jesus to ask you. If we understand that we're saved by grace alone, that actually we were dead and lost and frankly heading towards the fire of hell when Jesus came in, entered our world, saw us, reached out and healed us, saved us, then we have no bargaining rights. Everything we have, our life, our breath, is from him. We are saved by grace alone. You can't chip in with grace. It's like good whiskey or something. You can't add Coke. It, It just ruins it. It's grace is alone, or it's not grace at all. So it's a huge challenge, actually, to being saved by grace alone. In some ways it's scary, because we have no rights before Jesus. He is completely our Lord and our master. we can't complain about the loss of any comforts. It's not fair, God, that you did this, that you took this away from me, or you haven't given me this. There is no, it's not fair, God, in the Christian life. There is no cost he can't call us to pay. It means Jesus above my job, even if Staying faithful as a Christian will mean that I have to lose the career that I trained for at university, spent years building up, and then lose in a day because I have to sign something that effectively means I can't witness for Christ at work or whatever it might be. Jesus above my romantic happiness. It may be that the person you fall in love with and isn't walking with the Lord is going to be the great cost you have to pay in order to stay with Christ. I think we, we, we're sort of okay with this often. We, we understand that we've got to make sacrifices for Jesus, that there's a cost of following Jesus. But, but we, we, we understand and we're happy with it as long as. So, so I don't mind suffering as long as it, my suffering is seen and celebrated by the people. So just take a tiny example. And I hope this isn't a true-to-life example. It's not meant to be. Okay, so if it is, well, first of all, we've got a problem. Uh, but second of all, it's a coincidence. So just imagine... There's one person who for the whole last year has packed up the chairs after the service. It's say okay, so a little bit of suffering? or sort of the worst thing in the world, is it? It's a bit of a pain doing it on your own every week. Again, I really hope it hasn't been the case. We're sort of okay packing up the chairs as long as people notice. Oh, there's Bob packing the chairs up again. What a hero. What a servant. Or we're okay doing it as long as it's sort of comparable to others. Well, okay, I pack up the things every week, but I do know that Frank sets it all up every week. So it's, it kind of evens itself out. Now I'm okay serving in this kind of way. Or okay if it's rewarded, either by God or by man. But what if your, your service was never seen, never celebrated, never thanked? It was, frankly, harder than everybody else's. And there was no seeming fruit from it. We start to get bitter, resentful. This isn't fair, God. And that's just a tiny thing when we understand we've been saved by grace alone, we can serve happily. Thankfully, it's a privilege to be allowed to serve because this was the point of my salvation, that I might know Jesus and serve him. He's so wonderful that I want to do things for him. I'm not doing it as part of my earning my salvation or impressing other people or or, or sort of cementing my place in the church as a good egg. I'm doing it because I want to save the person who's done everything for me. Even the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. Even Jesus himself had no comfort on earth. So I enjoy my service because because I'm walking in his footsteps. I'm walking with him. He has saved me and he saved me to serve joyfully. And if he saved me, and if he saved me for that great happiness, that great day when there will be no sickness or mourning or suffering, uh, no more illness, no more depression, no more sadness, no more grief, then I can trust him. Yes, life might be hard now. The service that he calls me to might be difficult. The sacrifices might be painful. They will be. In fact, he's told me they will be. But the reason they're hard and painful is not because he's against me or or punishing me or exacting his pound of flesh. Somehow, even the hardness of the service is for my good. And I know that because he's come and borne my illness and borne my sin to the cross of Calvary. Saved to serve, so serve as those who are saved. Let's pray. Our Father God, we're uh, quick to see the good in ourselves and slow to see the glory of Christ. Uh, We're sorry for uh, how small a view we have of him, how how low he is in our estimation and how great we are in our own sight. So we pray that your spirit would open the eyes of our hearts that we might see that he has done everything, that we are saved by grace alone. We praise you for that salvation and pray that you would make us delight to serve Christ. And whatever cost you call us to pay, whatever comfort you take from us, might we delight knowing that we're serving our gracious Lord. So we ask in his name. Amen.